Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. He was the American League Rookie of the Year in 1949. But injuries derailed him for a few years afterwards. Later, a bum shoulder did not deter him, and despite the fact that he could barely toss the ball more than 100 feet, his bat was just too big to keep out of the lineup, and for nine straight years he hit 20-plus home runs. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at a baseball player who persevered to enjoy an absolutely terrific career, Roy Seavers. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello, and welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. And today, the story of a truly terrific baseball player, Roy Seavers. Now, while some of the forgotten stars we discuss on SFH are forgotten Hall of Famers or borderline Hall of Famers, sometimes we focus on guys who were just really great or good ball players who contribute mightily to their teams, enjoyed truly outstanding careers, but they weren't necessarily Hall of Fame careers. And I think that's where Roy Seavers fits in. But, and it's a big but, had Seavers not struggled with injuries for the four seasons immediately following his 1949 Rookie of the Year campaign, we might actually be talking about a guy who was Hall of Fame material. After all, Seavers broke into baseball in 1949 with the St. Louis Browns and ultimately called it quits 17 years later, 1965, with the second version of the Washington Senators. Between that, he hit 318 home runs that included a high of 42 in 1957 with the original Washington Senators. He was a four-time All-Star and had this uncanny knack for late-inning heroics. And we'll get to that later with our guest, Greg Wolf. Greg, who is a co-director of Sabre's Biography Project, has written dozens of biographies for Sabre. That's the Society for American Baseball Research, including a terrific bio on Seavers. Oh, by the way... Greg is also a published author and editor, and his newest book, Wrigley Field, The Friendly Confines at Clark and Addison, was just released, and you can pick up a copy by visiting saber.org, that's S-A-B-R dot O-R-G, or on Amazon. 
Remember, you can always find out more about Sports Forgotten Heroes by visiting our website, sportsfh.com, where you can quickly search for any of our past episodes, learn more about our guests, access links to more information about the forgotten stars we talk about, and send us comments or suggestions for stars you'd like to learn more about. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes. Look for our page on Facebook, and now you can follow us on Instagram as well. Just look for Sports Forgotten Heroes. Oh, and don't forget, keep those five-star ratings coming, and leave a comment too. Finally, let your family and friends know about our podcast. You never know, they might like Sports Forgotten Heroes as well. Okay, now... Let's get to Greg Wolf and our discussion about one of baseball's forgotten heroes, Roy Seavers. Greg, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I'm so glad you uh, decided to return. Warren, it's a pleasure to talk to you again. I appreciate the invitation. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about Roy Seavers. And I guess the way we should start is, what intrigued you most about him? Why write a bio about Roy Seavers? Well, let me give you a little bit of background information, Warren. I know I've done it before on the other uh, talks that we've had. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, uh, I, I currently serve as the co-director of the Biography Project, project which uh, is uh, sponsored by the Society for American Baseball Research. And in the bio project, one of our goals is to create um, a biography for every Major League Baseball player. Currently, we have uh, approaching 5,000 bios of primarily Major League players, some Negro League players. Around five years ago, uh, uh, Saber was working on a book about the 1964 Phillies, and I chose to write the bio for Roy Seavers, mm-hmm. and it was eventually included in this book. At that time, um, one of the reasons I wanted to write about Roy Seavers was because he was uh, one of the few remaining living members of the St. Louis Browns. Mm-hmm. It was my first interest uh, of the players who played for the phase. Some had been chosen, but this is a player that I thought was very intriguing. But the more I began to research Roy Seavers, uh, he retired well before um, my recollections of baseball uh, go back. He retired after the 1965 season. Mm-hmm. And to me, there were really four or five things that I find to be very um, interesting about Roy Seavers. And if I could tell you what they are. Sure. Um, I think four, uh, five things, and, and maybe we can really begin to uh, deconstruct his career in baseball. Number one, um, I think what's interesting is his incredible perseverance. He suffered suffered through uh, several debilitating and career-threatening injuries very early on in his career, and it looked like his career might be over. So one is his perseverance. Number two, he is the first American League Rookie of the Year. That was in 1949. Yep. Number three, um, he's a remarkably clutch home run hitter. Uh, About one quarter of his home runs were hit um, in the eighth inning or later. And I think number three is that he was known for his sweet home run uh, stroke. He had a very 
I would say, a textbook uh, swing. And there are some other interesting factoids about Roy Sievers. He was the first Major League Baseball player to lead bo- uh, to lead a league in both home runs and RBIs playing for a last-place team. Hmm, interesting. When when we look back at the history of baseball, you know, you would say, yeah, obviously Babe Ruth is an important part of the history of baseball. Hank Aaron, uh, you know, Lou Gehrig, uh, later on Bobby or Barry Bonds. Is Roy Seavers an important part of that history, the history of baseball? Uh, That's a good question. And uh, I would simply say, yes, he is. Um, I think today, when we look at what baseball means, we tend to immediately uh, focus in on home runs for hitters, for example. And those home run statistics are so skewed, especially over the last 40 and 50 years, that someone like Roy Seavers, who hit only, and I put only in parentheses, <laughs> 318 home runs is a forgotten figure. However, in the context of when he played and when he starred, he was a a five-time All-Star in the 1950s. He was, in fact, considered one of the most feared and best sluggers, not just in the American League, but in baseball Mm -hmm. in the 1950s. So Mm -hmm. in that respect, I think he is important. Um, Number two... Uh, when we think of home run hitters now, uh, we might have 400 home runs as a as a milestone. Maybe it's even 500 home runs now as a milestone. But if we take a look at baseball in the 1950s, we have to uh, remember that Roy Seavers was just the 18th hitter in baseball history to hit at least 300 home runs. I don't think anybody would have thought that Roy Seavers was one of the top 20 home run hitters at one time in his career. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, he is, uh, I think Roy Seavers is one of these players like Joe Adcock, like uh, like Bob Allison, um, like uh, Vic Wirtz, that maybe history has forgotten not because they weren't good, not at all, but because times change. They played for, at least in the case of Roy Seavers, he played primarily with very poor teams mm-hmm. during his most productive years, and he was overlooked. Yep. So let's go back to the beginning for Roy and what you had talked about just before, one of the big, you know, one of his big points, which was, Rookie of the Year. So in 1947, baseball established a new award. It was called the Rookie of the Year Award, and it was handed out to the best rookie in all of baseball. And the first award went to, surprise, Jackie Robinson. Right. The second year, it went to Alvin Dark. But mm-hmm. 1949 is when baseball decided to hand out an award for the American League Rookie of the Year and the National League Rookie rookie of the year and and Seavers won it in 49 was it a surprise to anyone I mean like many he thought he should have been on the big league ball club a few years earlier uh yes in fact uh Roy Seavers is 
is really a dark horse in 1949. Maybe a few things about his background. Well, Roy Stevens, as you mentioned in 1949 with the St. Louis Browns, he's a hometown product. Mm -hmm. He grew up on the north side of St. Louis, uh, just a few blocks from Sportsman's Park, um, uh, located at the intersection of Grand and Dottier Avenue on the north side a few miles north of St. Louis University. And um, he grew up there. That park, of course, was the home of both the uh, Browns and the Cardinals. The Browns owned the park, as, as, you, as you know, and the Cardinals were, in fact, the, the tenants of the Browns. Um, Roy Sievers grew up playing baseball. Uh, his father uh, had an unsuccessful tryout as a, as a major leaguer with the Detroit Tigers uh, in the late teens. Um, and Roy Severs played um, an interesting story about his high school. He was quite a, a natural athlete. He played at Beaumont High School. Beaumont High School um, was lo- it was located. It closed just a few years ago. But an interesting thing, Beaumont High School was built on the site of the old Robeson Field. Robeson Field is where the St. Louis Cardinals played baseball until 1920. And in mid-1920, the Cardinals moved from Robeson Field over to Sportsman's Park. On the site of Robeson Field, um, Beaumont High School was built. Hmm. North St. Louis was an incredibly densely populated area. St. Louis was one of the biggest cities in the U.S. In 1900, it was still among the top five biggest cities in the, in the United States and very uh, densely populated on the north side. And St. Louis was... Uh, well, it was it was a really popular baseball city, a mecca, if you will, of baseball. And uh, Roy Severs began to attract scouts already by the time he was 16 years old, playing wow. at Beaumont High School. His team had a number of um, of future major leaguers, um, and he eventually signed in 1945, not by uh, the Cardinals, but by the St. Louis Browns. Um, one of the reasons that he signed with the St. Louis Browns in 1945 is because he thought that he could uh, make it to the big league roster a little bit quicker with the St. Louis Browns. And I think this story is is worth telling. Sure. Keep in mind, um, we often think of the St. Louis Browns as one of the worst teams in American League history. <laughs> in fact, they were. Um, but in 1944, uh, during the war years, they actually won their first and only pennant in 1944 and played the St. Louis Cardinals in the World Series. They lost that World Series. It was, it was, it was much closer than, than experts had predicted. The Cardinals eventually won in four games. It was tied two games to two. And then uh, the Cardinals won the last two. Of course, all six games were played in Sportsman's Park. And in 1945, uh, the St. Louis Browns had another winning season, consecutive winning seasons for the first time in, in 20 years. Anyway, um, despite those wins, those consecutive winning seasons, the um, the Cardinals were a cash-strapped team. It was uh, uh, owned by the DeWitt family at that time, and they did not have a very developed farm system. And the farm system, of course, for the St. Louis Cardinals, well, it was known as the chain gang. Of course, uh, Branch Rickey begins to start that farm system in the 1920s, mm-hmm. and it eventually grows to, to, to 
almost 30 minor league teams at one point. And so he signed in 45, thought his best chance to become a major leaguer would be with the St. Louis Browns. Um, he was drafted into the Army two years later. He goes to um, he goes to spring training in 1947. And like you said, he thought that he uh, was major league ready in 1947. Of course, he was just around um, 20 years old so no, and, and, and hadn't played minor league yet. But he was at the big league camp in 1947. That's a really important point. Uh, he had a good camp and was farmed out to um, uh, to uh, the low minor leagues, to a Class C team, a Class C league, uh, and wound up leading the Central Association in home runs. Went back to spring training in forty-seven uh, in 1948 with the Browns, had another good spring training, but was farmed out again and spent most of the 48 season in Class B baseball. Class hmm. B, uh, Warren. Hmm. In, in, 1945, in 1949, he makes the team in 1949, makes the big league roster. Now, the, 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 the Browns, well, after their two winning seasons, they were back to their normal situation uh, in the second division of the American League. And for re- readers who might not be that aware, uh, Major League Baseball consisted, obviously, of the two leagues, American and National League, and they both had eight teams. And the top four, that was called the first division, and the bottom four was called the second division. That was important because World Series earnings uh, went to the top four teams uh, in, the, in, in each league. So it was uh, important for the teams, at least financially lucrative to the players, to be among those top four teams. But they, uh, the Browns were back in to... Uh, their, their uh, uh, customary status of being a second division team. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't know that. It, yeah. It, so, so in 49 though, he, he does make the team he um, makes the team, and he hits, and he, he hits 306 with 16 homers, 91 ribbies. So he felt like he belonged and he sort of proved that he belonged. How well, frustrated he, was he? Well, I, I have to say that I had the pleasure of, of interviewing Roy Sievers, a number of times for the uh, the interview uh, for the biography that I wrote about him, and uh, when I interviewed him, he was in his mid eighties. He died at age um, ninety in wow. two thousand seven. So I w- was able to interview him on a number of occasions and and talk to him about baseball in general, uh, even more than that. Um, it was uh, I think all baseball players uh, want to be in the big leagues, and I. I and, and of course, he said and believed that he should have been on the team, given how bad the Browns were. He was probably right, but you know what major league, what what major league manager or at the time general manager would would uh, promote someone who had only played you know two hundred less than two hundred fifty games or about two hundred fifty games in class uh, B and C ball, sprinkled in a few games on the A level, so not much at all. Mm-hmm. But he. Uh, he did have a fine season. He batted over 300. In fact, that was his career high batting average, 306. He batted over 300 again in his career, but that was his career high, 306. Uh, 16 home runs might not sound like a lot, but it was the most among rookies that year in baseball. And his 91 RBIs was ranked sixth hmm. in the American League. So a lot of RBIs for, quite honestly, an absolute terrible team. 
he, they, must have, they, they must have thought really highly of him to well, to vote he, him rookie of the year because he beat out a guy by the name of Alex Kellner who won twenty games for the Philadelphia Athletics. Exactly, exactly. He was um, he was uh, he was touted uh, early in the nineteen forty nine season. Um, once he once he moved into the starting role uh, in the outfield. He was touted as the best product ever out of uh, St. Louis, the wow. best baseball prospect out of St. Louis. And you can imagine he was um, highly sought after by major league teams already after the 1949 season. Uh, Club said the Yankees, there were a lot of rumors that the Yankees were trying to acquire him. Uh, even Connie Mack had, uh, and that was another cast trap. A team, the the Philadelphia Athletics, they had attempted to acquire him. So a lot of teams, major league teams, um, were attempting to procure um, uh, uh, Seavers already. So now it's hard to say um, why. I mean, I, I I can't I can speculate. There could be a number of reasons why he might have beat out um, uh, uh, Kellner. Kellner in in 1949. Well, one is uh, the Sporting News was of course based in. In St. Louis, uh, yeah, in yeah, and the so role. Um, uh, uh, so, and and the and the A's were a terrible team, but I think playing in St. Louis gave you a little bit of of publicity. Even by playing for the Browns, you got some publicity. Uh, of course, the Sporting News was such an important publication for baseball for for generations, for sure. seventy, eighty years. Sure. Um, hey. Greg, after that 49 season, he really struggled. In fact, it wasn't until 1954 that he would have another really good season. In 1950, he played in just 113 games, and he hit 238 with 10 homers and 57 ribbies. In 51, he played in just 31 games. In 52, he only played in 11 games. 1953, as I look through here, he played in 92 games. What happened? I read where he had a shoulder injury. How right. bad was it? And how well, did he sustain it? And how did he overcome it? It was bad enough that, um, well, I'll start off by saying in 1950, he's being touted as you know, one of the next superstars. Mm -hmm. and 1950 was in many ways a wash uh, because of a terrible, terrible slump. A sophomore slump, he was probably pressing, and uh, he eventually lost his job. He lost his starting position in 1950. So you have a sophomore slump. Now, uh, what makes this worse is in 19. In, uh, in 1951, he starts off the season. Uh, he's demoted uh, to he, – he, there's an attempt for him to play third base. Uh, that fails, and he's ultimately demoted to the Texas League, to uh, San Antonio in the Texas League, right? And so they think that he needs some seasoning in the Texas League, and it's precisely there where he – uh, injures his shoulder in early August. He falls on his shoulder. On his uh, he, he uh, receivers uh, threw right uh, uh, from the right side and batted from the right side. And he fell on his right shoulder uh, in early uh, in early August, and that really ended his season right there. This mm -hmm. shoulder was very damaged, and it puts him on uh, the 
on the shelf for most of the rest of the season. There's an attempt to come back, but he's suffering. In spring training with uh, with the Browns in 1952, um, he suffers two injuries that basically uh, jeopardize his career. He dislocates his arm, and he has some very serious nerve damage in his shoulder and undergoes experimental surgery uh, in 1952. This is done, if I recall correctly, at Johns Hopkins Hospital. It's, uh, it was a, uh, a surgery that, that Seavers, in, in, in the interview with me, told me that he thought he could not lift his arm, his, his uh, right arm, to throw. Wow. Lift his arm to throw the baseball. Um, he thought his career was over. Even after this, the surgery um, in 19, uh, in, as I said, the surgery in 1952, um, he thought his career might be over. He only played in 11 games, in nine, 11 major league games in 1952, but he could barely hit the ball. He, um, he had no power at all. He couldn't have, a, he couldn't follow through uh, at all in 1952. He came back in 1953 and he, uh, the Seavers mentioned two people who had a big role in his career at this point and, and really uh, looked at them as helping to save his career. And the first person is uh, the Browns athletic trainer, whose name was Bob Bauman. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in St. Louis baseball history, this is really, really an important person. Bob Bauman was also the trainer at St. Louis University in sports. And Bob Bauman really worked with him day and night. Um, in 1953, um, at spring training, uh, Severs could still not lift his hand, his arm, much above his shoulder. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you can imagine how, from the outfield, are you going to throw the ball if you can only bring up your arm to your shoulder? Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. So he worked with him. And number two... Bill Vick, who had purchased the Browns from the DeWitt family in 1951, he becomes the majority owner. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's working with uh, with Seaver, Seavers as well. He says, well, if you can't throw the ball from the outfield, let's work on becoming a first baseman. So he simply hit baseballs, baseballs, baseballs to him uh, at first base to help him learn. I cannot imagine Bill Veck with a bat in his hands and hitting ground balls to Roy Seavers. Just doesn't seem just well, my, my my image of Bill Veck is not a guy like that. Well, uh, I know I know exactly what you mean. So you have you know sports shirt Veck. Um, he, uh, as you know, he had a, a, a foot amputated, and he often simply walked around in. Well, he, uh, uh, literally a stump, as you know. He, so he, he actually he actually carved into his prosthetic leg an ashtray. Yes, I was going to say he was probably on the field. Now, uh, Bill Vick kept an apartment in Sportsman's Park, so he would he would have been living there at the time. <laughs> I, you can imagine him strolling out of his out of his. Uh, out of his office, out of his apartment. Um, he's out there smoking a cigarette and uh, hitting grounders to uh, with a fungal bat to, to Roy Seavers, who then 
can't throw the balls back to him. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds it sounds funny, but without those two, without those two play, uh, those personalities, uh, Roy Seager said that his career uh, would never have been rejuvenated. And throughout the season, well, at least for the first half of the 1953 uh, season, it looked like. Um, that Seavers could not come back. He was hitting under 200 uh, through June through the first two months of the season, but he got his stroke back and for the remainder of the season, so let's say for the last three months of the season, did get his stroke back and batted around 300. Granted, with not much power at all, he still could not drive the ball, the ball uh, couldn't hit the ball, had no upward tra- trajectory on the ball, uh, but um, he he was able to he was able to uh, become a starter once again. Now, of course, let, let me ask you this. Let me interject here. Why did Bill Vec take such an interest in Roy Seavers? Well, I'll say that Bill Vec belongs in the Hall of Fame. There, it's senseless that he's not in the Hall of Fame. With all he did, yeah. And Bill Vec's father. Bill Vec Sr., who was the business manager for the Chicago Cubs, he should be in the Hall of Fame as well. Um, that, that's just my pontification right now. <laughs> Bill Vec, I have interviewed a lot of former St. Louis Browns. Granted, there are fewer and fewer. Mm-hmm. I wrote the biography for Virgil Trucks, who played for the Browns for a short time. For Ned Garver, who uh, played for the Browns, who won 20 games for a last place team for the Browns in the, in the early fifties. Everyone that I spoke to who played for Bill Vec and the Browns in those two years in the early 1950s. So 52 and 53 all said that Bill Vec cared a lot about every one of his players. At the same time, Bill Vec recognized that he had very limited money. He uh, of course he had owned the, the, the Cleveland Indians took them to the World Series in 1948, and a divorce caused him to sell uh, the, that, that club when he, uh, about a year and a half later, purchases the Browns. But the players that I spoke to all said that this was a professional. Uh, he loved his players and was truly concerned about the welfare of the players. Hmm. So that's what players have told me. And he wanted his players to succeed. <clears throat> now, Bill Vec, um had been trying to relocate uh, the Browns, uh, immediately when he bought them, he wanted to relocate the Browns. Um, one of the places that he had tried to move was, of course, Milwaukee in 19, uh, in 1952. He tried to move to Milwaukee, and he was blocked. One of the people who blocked um, Bill Vec from moving to Milwaukee in 1952 was the Perini family who owned the they owned the Boston Braves, and they moved there several weeks later, of course, and Major League Baseball accepted them. Uh, Bill Vec was a master showman. He got he graded the nerves of, of the baseball establishment with all of his, his uh, kooky uh, uh, marketing ploys, everything from Eddie Goodell, as you know, yep. um, uh, the three-foot-seven three uh, pinch hitter to start the game to the <laughs> manager of the day stories. But uh, the players must have truly really respected Bill Vec. 
And um, eventually uh, he has to sell the club and he does sell the team in 1953 at the end of the 53 season, uh, sells them to, um, to an outfit in Baltimore. And so uh, Seavers is on his way to Baltimore. Well, but before we get there, before we get there, before we get there, I know we're talking about Roy Seavers, but I'm really interested in, in the story of Bill Veck a little bit as well. And one of the questions I have is why the Browns struggled so much in St. Louis and they own Sportsman's Park, as you said, right. and yet the Cardinals were the team that that stayed. So talk a little bit more about uh, uh, the popularity of both the Browns and the Cardinals. Why were the Cardinals the more popular team? And when when the Browns moved to Baltimore, what happened to Sportsman's Park? Was that sold as well? The story really has to go back about uh, 25 years. And in the early 1920s, we're talking about uh, the late, let's say, the late teens uh, and the early 1920s. Um, the St. Louis Browns were the big team in St. Louis. The St. Louis Browns and the Cardinals were the second-rate team. The Browns were, in fact, an original inaugural member of the American League. They actually started in Milwaukee, mm -hmm. and they moved after the 1901 season to St. Louis in 1902. And they were uh, the, the top team in the late teens and, and 20s, early 20s in St. Louis. A big change occurred. It was a it was a cash trap club, but they had a lot of stars on that team: Sisler and, and Ken Williams, uh, just to name two. Um, in in in, um, in the early 1920s, two things happened. Number one, a very important uh, a new ownership group took over the Cardinals, and that was Sam Braden. And Sam Braden also brings in his team. Uh, play, uh, uh, his team uh, brings in uh, Branch Rickey, who, of course, also was with the St. Louis Browns. Uh, Branch Rickey was already with the St. Louis Cardinals by the time uh, Braden purchased the club, but he be he uh, begins to play a bigger and bigger role with the St. Louis Cardinals. And through the development of uh, the, the uh, farm system, Branch Rickey's idea, the accumulation of power, uh, the accumulation of, of players, uh, they develop into simply, oh, well, their their uh, their dynasty. Uh, the Cardinals win the the pennant, uh, five pennants in, mm -hmm. in nine years between 26 and 1934. And of course, they have that pennant run winning four more pennants in the in the 1940s between 42 and 46. Um, so they have a, a team that is popular among the fans and the Browns uh, are by a number of very cash strapped teams or uh, cash strapped ownership groups. Um, the Phil Ball ownership group before DeWitt um, was also very cash strapped. And the, the Browns, uh, because they're poor, they're poor teams, they had a very, very limited uh, farm club. Um, when you're losing 100 games or 95 games 
in a 154 game schedule, hmm. you're not drawing the fans. And we're talking about during the um, during the Great Depression in St. Louis, when both teams were hit very hard, we're talking about an average of of 3,000 players, uh, 3,000 fans coming to the Browns games in the 1930s. Wow. Right. Um, and so it simply developed that, you know, you have uh, um, momentum, of course, with the, with the St. Louis Cardinals and the simply the, the, the prolonged success that the Cardinals had between their first uh, pennant in 1926 um, and 1946, these 21 years, I mean, uh, that was simply a phenomenal run of success. Sure. The sure. Cardinals did not integrate as quickly, of course, as we know, as other National League teams. And so they began to have uh, some struggles in the 1950s. They didn't integrate like uh, the, uh, the Braves did and the Giants did and the Dodgers did and the Pirates did. So uh, they didn't integrate as quickly. And the Browns, uh, well, if you have an owner who simply is selling off his talent after one and two seasons, there's a lot of turnover. Uh, for the Browns, when the Browns sell uh, the team uh, to the Baltimore ownership group, they sell St. Uh, Sportsman's Park to uh, the St. Louis Cardinals ownership okay. group. Okay. Okay. So it's transferred over. Okay. Now, now, like you said, they sold the team. Vex sold the team to the Baltimore ownership group in 1953, and Seavers was on his way to Baltimore. Well, maybe, maybe not. They traded right. him. They traded they, him to Washington. Why? Well, uh, number one, Baltimore didn't think that he could play the outfield. They he still could not raise his arm above his shoulder. Now we're talking about an injury now that's two years old. Um, Three years, if you go back to the initial injury in 1951, right, the end of 1951. Mm-hmm. So now we're talking about almost three years. He still cannot lift his arm above his shoulder. Uh, uh, the Orioles said this person, I mean, there's no way that he's going to be able to throw the ball. Uh, there's no way that he can play the outfield. He was immediately shipped to um, uh, to Washington. So, 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 but, but. What I'm not understanding is why Baltimore insisted on playing Seavers in the outfield when Vec and and Bowman were trying to work him into a first baseman. Why did Baltimore not consider Roy Seavers a first baseman at that point? Well, it wasn't wasn't a question of just having him as a first baseman. They did not think that he could ever uh, develop into a bonafide hitter again. Oh, okay. So it's not just not being able to, it's not just, I mean, they looked at him as someone who might be out of baseball in one year. <laughs> they, this is, um, I mean, uh, Seavers said that he wanted to stay in Baltimore, was excited about basically playing for yet another, uh, in, in many ways, um, a new, a new club, of course, a new club, and a new club for that city. Um, but he still could not uh, lift his hand, lift his arm, arm above his shoulder. And when he arrived in in Washington, uh, the manager was Bucky Harris. Bucky Harris is a Hall of Famer, and his uh, his history with the uh, with the uh, Senators go back to the World Series championship in 1924 when he was a player manager for the club. Bucky Harris told Seavers that he didn't even think that he should be on the team. He wow. wasn't even sure where he would play. 
Now, he couldn't play first base for the Washington Senators. That was for sure. They already had one of the best first basemen, and that was uh, Mickey Vernon. Mickey Vernon led the American League in hitting in 1953, even though he was in his mid-30s. He batted something like 343 in 1953 and, and drove in 100 runs. That was their best player. So he was a uh, lucky Harris. He didn't even think that he could – he wasn't even sure where he would play. Mm-hmm. Uh, he put him out in left field. Uh, Seavers told me that his surgeon warned him that he could simply rip his shoulder up if he tried to throw the ball from the outfield. Wow. And so he's put in the outfield. He can't lift his arm up. And um, he tells me that he is out there. He he catches a ball in left field. Let's say if on the fly, he's having to hold his glove in an awkward way. So his uh, elbow was almost flush to his let's say to his, his waist, catching, catching the ball. He basically can't lunge at anything. He can't make any, he can't dive because of a fear of injuring his, his shoulder again. And if he does catch something on the bounce, he's having to relay basically a 150 yard throw or, a, or excuse me, 150 feet throw uh, to the second baseman. Mm-hmm. Or to the shortstop, depending on where he is, probably to the shortstop primarily, but he's having to relay the ball in. So he can't even throw the ball. Wow. But in the end, the trade to Washington ends up being a blessing. I mean, this is where Roy Seavers finally gets his game back, and he really took off. I mean, he wound up being one of the greats in Senators team history. And we're talking about the original Washington Senators who ultimately became the Minnesota Twins. I mean, his first year in Washington, playing at Griffith Stadium, after a slow start, bang, he figures it out. And he goes on to whack 24 home runs and knock in 102. He was off and running. So tell us a little more about his years with the Senators and, of course, that one very special year, 1957, when he hit 301 with 42 home runs and 114 ribbies. Well, uh, Warren, I would really say that the six years that he spent with the Senators, 1954 to 1959, really underscore Roy Seaver's perseverance. Uh, This is someone who grew up during the Great Depression. His parents didn't have a whole lot. Roy Seavers was determined. Uh, If he had not been determined, he would have quit baseball uh, during these uh, during the four years um, during which he played uh, the, well uh, 250 games in four years, and it looked like his career would be over. Um, all six years in Washington, he hit over 20 home runs. He set new Washington Senator home run records. His first year with 24 his second year with 25, his third year with 29, and then in his fourth year, he set yet another record for the Senators with 42 home runs. He was the best home run hitter to that point in Senators history. I dare say that, I don't know, uh, maybe his number two should be uh, retired uh, for the Senators. I don't know. Now, of course, that's the the twins. They moved after the 1960 season. Right. Um, he was, um, 
He was an all-star. He was one of the most respected players in baseball. He was a quiet, hard worker. Um, he was feared, yet he played in practical anonymity for a team which, like the St. Louis Browns, was among the worst in baseball <laughs> and had been among the worst for a generation since their uh, last World Series appearance when Walter Johnson was a manager in the early 1930s. Uh, he played six seasons. They finished in last place and eighth place four of those seasons and in sixth place once. That was their highest finish. Wow. He was, um, he was, I, I think for, for me, very inspirational. I mean, talking to him was very inspirational. He was still incredibly um, um, mod about his accomplishments. He didn't mention anything about our receivers did not talk about, Oh, I should be known for this. I should be known for that. Um, I think in, in many ways he, 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 he was excited to talk about someone who knew about his career. I think baseball players, when you talk to baseball players um, who played, I mean, I, I was talking to him about his career 60 years earlier, of course, um, in many ways, they think you, who knows, you're, you're maybe some young punk who doesn't know anything. Of course, when you start talking to a baseball player uh, intelligently about his career, he also begins to open up and, and speaks about his career, about how much he loved playing in D.C. He loved the pageantry in baseball. He loved uh, he loved talking to um, the United States president who showed up during uh, opening day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me interject here. Playing in Washington certainly, you know, it comes with its perks. And right. and and Seavers, he certainly took advantage of it. He bragged about having lunch with Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon and Eisenhower. Can exactly. you talk about what it was like playing baseball in the nation's capital back then and the kind of people you could find yourself with? I mean, I think he also somehow met Nikita Khrushchev. Well, he did. He did. Um, he, early on, after his first season, and especially after his his uh, record-breaking season in 1940, in 1957, when he led the American League with 42 home runs and and also led the league with 114 RBIs. I mean, he um, is is a sought-after speaker in the off-season uh, banquet circuit, uh, and that's the case for several years for him. So he is. Uh, it's it's probably something that's difficult to understand now. Uh, I'm a member of, of several baseball um, historical associations. And in Milwaukee, we have the Milwaukee Braves Historical Association. We have several banquets a year mm -hmm. when former Milwaukee Braves come and speak to um, speak to uh, interested parties. But imagine a time when baseball players did not earn a lot. And I'm not quite sure what uh, Seaver's top salary was, but I think he told me it might have been in the mid nine in the mid thirties, mm -hmm. uh, which of course was a lot of money in the late 1950s. Sure. But in any case, um, throughout the 1950s, uh, he augmented his income by being a popular speaker. Now, um, that, what does, what does being a, a speaker mean? Well, he simply would have talked about what he did during the season. He would have, you know, 
the same kind of uh, today when we hear a baseball player speak, everyone's so excited during a fan fest. It was no different then, except the players weren't these millionaires like they are today. And there probably was a lot more accessibility to players. They were much more like you and me. Um, and so he spoke with, uh, he dined with presidents. He dined with um, with uh, ambassadors. He dined with diplomats. He went to all kinds of uh, events in D.C. and was a very interested, uh, an interesting man about town. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned, uh, he wasn't, uh, he had a high school formal education. But he was, uh, you know, he was, uh, maybe you would call him today some somewhat autodidactic, teaching himself about what's going on in the world and seemed very interested. Mm-hmm. Also with his wife taking her to these kinds of events. So he would seem to be very, uh, from what I gathered speaking with him, he truly did love living in Washington, D.C. and being a part of of the, let's say, the cultural landscape of Washington, D.C., yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. going to these kinds of dinners. Now, the team, as I said, was terrible. Um, they drew, uh, they had poor fan attendance, just like uh, the St. Louis uh, Browns did. Now, the Griffith family owned uh, the, the, the Washington Senators, and uh, Clark Griffith died. Calvin Griffith took over the team in 1956 and adjusted the fences in uh, Griffith Stadium. That was one of the biggest stadiums in all of baseball. It was a mammoth stadium. You have to think of a mammoth ballpark, much like Forbes Field. He adjusted the, the, uh, the dimensions a little bit in 19, beginning in 1956, and it also led to an increase in home runs. Uh, that's why you see these home run records set. Uh, his his uh, Seavers home run totals go from 29 to 42 mm-hmm. and 39 in 19. 19- uh, in 1958, and uh, in left field where he hit a lot of his blasts, he was a you know a typical pool hitter. Think of someone like Joe Adcock and these big sluggers of the 1950s. He was a pool hitter in left field. They christened Seversville, where he simply must have dumped a lot of home runs <laughs> uh, there. And so he was he was their star. He was their first star, Warren, in 20 years. Wow. Uh, he was the best player, really, their best hitter, the best home run hitter uh, in their franchise history. He was their best player, really, since Goose Goslin in the 20s and, and Joe Cronin in the, 1950, in the 1930s. But every year there were trade rumors that he would be going somewhere. Um, I don't know if I wrote it in, in, the, in the biography, but uh, Severs told me that he would hear stories that he might be traded to. Uh, to Fenway Park, or might be traded to uh, to, yeah, to 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 the Yankees, you know, to, traded to the Red Sox or the Yankees. And he said, "My gosh, had I played in those places, I would have been hitting fifty home runs." Wow, wow. So yeah, so let's talk about trades for a second here. Well, first of all, like we said, he ended up being one of the greats in the history of the Washington Senators. He had a good fifty-eight, a decent nineteen fifty-nine. But then the Senators sent Roy to the White Sox. So how much did that have to do with the fact that Bill Veck was now the owner of the White Sox? And by the way, he had just won the AL pennant. And he did he want to reunite with Seavers? 
Well, uh, yes. I think two things. Well, number one, uh, much like the Browns when, when Seavers played with him at the early part of the decade, um, Griffith is bleeding money. Uh, fans are not turning out. Um, Calvin Griffith needs uh, needs cash inflow. Uh, by the end of the 1959 season, uh, we have rising stars already with the Senators. And I think that uh, the rising stars are Allison, Killebrew, Jim Lemon. So three really big home run sluggers. Um, Killebrew led the American League in home runs in mm-hmm. 1959. And and Seavers was injured a little bit in 1959. He um, only played in 115 games. So he had been out, of, uh, out about almost one third of the season. So I think he was expendable, not to mention uh, he was uh, 32 years old. And so when he was, it wasn't a surprise. I um, wish I was only 32 years old. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> well, he was traded to uh, the White Sox. And I think, uh, as you mentioned, coming off the, the, the pennant, uh, the go-go Sox, it was a fast team. Bill Vec built that team on speed and on hitting. You think of people like uh, Nellie Fox in 1959. I think he might have been the AL MVP in 59. There was his pitching strong team, great defense, led the American League in double plays, Louis Aparicio and Nellie Fox, middle infielders, Hall of Fame duo. And one of the complaints was they need some home, they need some power. They need some power. So um, they bring him in, and in true in true uh, Bill Vec fashion, well, uh, he mortgages the future. Yeah, Earl mm-hmm. Batty and Don Mincher, those are two decent ball players. When you look back at it, you got to think to yourself, you know, the Senators really might have won that trade. Well, they did. Of course, those those players turned into uh, all-stars for the Twins. Of course, the Senators leave after the 1960 season to become the, uh, become the Minnesota Twins. And 61 is expansion in the AL, so there's a new Washington Senators team, so they're not actually the same franchise. Right. But that's a different story for another uh <laughs> for another one of your podcasts. He's traded to the traded to the White Sox. Looking back, I think Seavers was proud of this season as much of any season in baseball, in his baseball career. At the same time, was also a little bit frustrated. And he was frustrated because um, I, I think that he felt that L. Lopez, Hall of Fame manager, um, really did not know how to use him. And Lopez had a very convoluted platoon system, and he was platooning uh, Seavers and uh, Big Ted Krasinski. Now, Big Clue, uh, you think of him as such a great home run hitter with the uh, Cincinnati Reds in the 1950s. Big biceps, big, big biceps. biceps. He was, of course, a football player at Purdue, too. Um, so he starts off with a very poor season. He doesn't get in his groove. He's not um, um, this platoon system. He's not he's just not seeing action uh, regularly enough. And he'd been a regular uh, since 1954 after his injuries. He finally begins to play more regularly, and the White Sox, um, by the end of July, are in first place and have 
the MVP vote taking place at the end of July, well, Roy Sievers probably would have been the MVP. Wow. Uh, that season. Uh, they trail, they, they begin, they are uh, cool off. The White Sox cool off in 19, uh, the, the, the last two months and, and uh, obviously don't win the pennant in 1960. The, the Yankees go back to their uh, uh, custom position in first place and take the pennant. Uh, but uh, Roy Sievers has an incredible season. Uh, you could take modern counting statistics, 28 home runs and 93 RBIs, or you can take a look at uh, maybe modern um, sabermetric statistics. He has an on-base percentage of almost 400. He slugs in uh, f- uh, around 530. Uh, his OBS was 930 and his OPS was 150. Those were some numbers I had written down because I wanted to mention those. Mm-hmm. Look at those modern statistics. Well, these are star statistics. I mean, uh, OPS, his OPS plus 150. Um, which was the second highest in his career, that's 50% above average of the, of a major leaguer. This wow. is really a wonderful season in, in, in Chicago in 1960. And he basically um, repeats those statistics in 1961. But what happened? So what, what, what did, did he, so, so he, he has this great 60, a great 61. What happened to him? Did, did, was it the age? Did the shoulder start bothering him again? What happened? Nope. Uh, he's traded in at the end of the 1961 right. season. Don't forget, Vec has to get rid of the team. It's another, the same old, same old for Bill Vec. Cash trap team. He's also undergoing some health problems. And that team eventually is sold to another Chicago uh, majority ownership group. So Bill Beck gets rid of the team. Uh, here you have a uh, 33-34-year-old slugger uh, who was one of the highest paid players on the team. They get rid of him, send him to Philadelphia. Right. So he ba- so he bounces around a little bit, and he's relegated to part-time duty. He plays for the Phillies, and then he heads back to Washington, only this time for the new Senators, who are now, by the way, the Texas Rangers. He ends up going to the new Senators. And I think he's just one of nine guys to play for both Senator franchises. So, he is, exactly. so, so tell us about that period. Oh, well, he does bounce around a little bit. Uh, uh, he's with Philadelphia. He, he's a starter for two seasons and has a, you know, respectable numbers. I think it's important uh, to note um, that in 19, his first season for the, for the Phillies in 1962, uh, the Phillies win 81 games, 81 and 80. They go that season. Um, they had improved from a. They had won 47 games the previous season, and that 62 team. Um, Gene Mock, I believe, is the manager, the young manager in 1962. And the Phillies have um, four ho- four players to hit 20 home runs for the first time in Phillies history. So that's an interesting uh, factoid uh, for those who like those kinds of uh, factoids. Um, in his second season with the Phillies, he hits 19 home runs, and that's ends his ends his uh, uh, his home run his season consecutive seasons of hitting 20 home runs, uh, which he had done since 1954. So he had these seasons between 1954 and 1962, 1963. So these 10 seasons, the first nine of which he hit 20 home runs. Um, 
He is on the 64 team. The Phillies, of course, that's a um, famous collapse. Collapse, the fold, the P-H-O-L-D fold. Uh, look like they're going to maybe capture the pennant. Um, he, uh, Severs had already been traded early in the season, so he's not with that club during the fold. Maybe he could have offered some you know, veteran leadership and, and maybe some stability on the team. That's just conjecture. But he goes back to Washington and plays just a handful of games, um, uh, pinch hitting duty a little bit uh, in the field. Um, but at this time, I think um, Severs recognizes that, you know, he's he's 38 years old. He's approaching. He's at the end of his career. He, he Difficulty running, difficulty even making contact. That's under 200. Uh, he realizes his career is uh, nearing its end mm-hmm. and, and retires. And I, I asked uh, asked him, you know, he hit a few milestones, of course, his last season in Philadelphia. It's his 300th home run off of Roger Craig to become the 18th uh, 18th player to hit 300 home runs. And I think that's a really important uh, statistic. And um, he was proud of that. And I think it's a, it's an important, it was an important milestone in, in baseball at that time. And I asked him, what, what did he uh, anticipate doing after his baseball career? And that's a question that I've asked baseball players and I've, I've interviewed literally dozens and dozens of players and I especially enjoy interviewing players um, from the 1950s and I asked him what did you think you would do and I remember him telling me that he wasn't quite sure you know he had played baseball his entire life um, he didn't go to college um, and he didn't know what he would do and um, he went into managing in the minors and um, he said that he said, you know, Greg, um, I I could not feed my family. Yeah, it didn't pay enough. It didn't pay enough. Yeah, I, um, I'm earning ten or twelve thousand dollars a year. I have a family. We live in St. Louis. How do I simply raise my family and my kids? And he said this was simply not a viable option for me to um, uh, to be a manager. And I think he might have managed for four years or so. Um, if I recall correctly, he had also deliberated about maybe going into major league coaching, but there was no money in that either. And he thought there was simply not any kind of viable option to go into to go into that. And he did for, did go into business. I can't recall exactly. I think he went into some kind of freight business, like a trucking line uh, out of St. Louis, and he worked there for about 20 years, let's say from around 1970 to around, um, around 19, around 1990. Hmm. Interesting. You know, we, we talked about his perseverance. Obviously he had a sweet stroke. He overcomes this career threatening shoulder injury, which by the way, I got to go back to one thing here. When he went from Baltimore to Washington, and 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 he starts out in left field in Washington. He ultimately moves to first base. Why did Washington ultimately move him to first base? At what point did they say, you know, we we if we really want to keep him in the lineup, we got to get him out of the outfield because he's he's hurting us there. And yeah, at what point did did it just really suddenly start to click? And he sort of, I guess, overcomes this shoulder injury and is able to start whacking the ball again. Uh, at right. what point, you know, all of a sudden did it click? I mean, what happened there to overcome that injury? Well, 
Not so much. It's not as as, as um not so much injury related. As I mentioned, when he came up with the when he uh, was traded to the Senators to begin the 1954 season, Mickey Vernon was there, and Mickey Vernon was coming off uh, a season that had led the American League in in batting, and he still had several good seasons in him. So that position was was down pat, and then. Uh, Pete Runnels had played first base, and it wasn't really until 1959 that um, that Seavers was moved to first base, and the main reason was because of another big slugger, and that was Jim Lemon, a big with a big roundhouse swing, a really strong slugger, mm-hmm. such a poor fielder at first and third base. They had to move him into left field so they could simply. Uh, kind of hide him out there. So it was more so, well, there's someone who is a really bad fielder. We need to get him out to, to left field. So Seavers, so Seavers first, first years, his first five years in Washington, he was really playing left field and didn't move to first base until 59. Right. Oh, I, exactly. I, I, I didn't understand that. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Because you have you, Mickey Vernon is there for the first few years and Pete Reynolds and his move to first base is simply precipitated by Jim Lemon. And Jim mm-hmm. Lemon was, uh, we're talking about, uh, he was a mammoth home run hitter, uh, mm-hmm. like Killebrew and, uh, uh, Killebrew and Seavers and, and uh, Bob Allison. They were all big, big home run hitters in 1959. But you had mentioned his swing, uh, Roy Seaver's swing. And I need to really mention that because it, for me, is one of the, one of the things when I think about perseverance and how baseball players can be, uh, well, they can be inspirational. Um, Roy Sievers told me that he um, developed his swing by watching one of his favorite players, and that was Joe Ducky Medwick of the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, Perfect, um, perfect balance, uh, perfect position, perfect follow through, elbow up, chin tucked in, perfect follow through. And you have a shoulder injury that adjusts your swing. Now, I live in Chicago, as you know, and the big discussion we've had over the last year and a half is the shoulder injury that uh, Chris Bryan had caused him to have three different swings last year. And, of course, his numbers were way down from his MVP season two years earlier. And even right now, we can see that he's beginning to come out of it, but he had been struggling for the first 25 games or so. Mm-hmm. So. Roy Severs went through these four seasons where it looked like his career could be over. And he redeveloped and worked on that swing to get it back to where it was when he was rookie of the year in 1949. And that was so graceful and so smooth. This was textbook, beautiful swing. And I think it's, it's so, it's so good that it was Hollywood like, and maybe it was more than just Hollywood like it was Hollywood. Wow. And he was the swinging double for Tab Hunter in the movie Damn Yankees. Hmm. So if you watch the the Hollywood film Damn Yankees from the 1950s and watch Tab Hunter who plays Joe Hardy swing, it is Roy Seavers who actually is swinging the bat. We're talking about this is this is uh this is Holly he had a Hollywood swing. Sweet stroke, sweet stroke. You know, you also mentioned one other thing at the start of our show today. 
in the article you wrote about Roy Seavers for Sabre, in the first paragraph, you mentioned one of the most impressive facts about Roy, and that was his ability to pull through in the clutch. Almost a quarter of his 318 home runs were hit in the eighth inning or later. He connected for nine walk-off blasts, 10 grand slams, and 10 pinch-hit home runs. Talk about his ability to pull through in the clutch because that is some real clutch hitting. Yeah, I I mean, you gave the statistics. I don't know what more I could say about that other than it is a remarkable number of home runs that were hit in the eighth inning or later. Uh, The number of grand slams, uh, the pinch hit home runs. I mean, this is a home run slugger who also pinch hits. Now, I've not done it, but it would be interesting uh, for a listener to uh, get on baseballreference.com and find out among those home run hitters with 300 or more, how many of those have at least 10 pinch hit home runs? I just can't imagine many. I'd like to know how many, period. Right. Um, I would say what, what, what makes the statistic for me really amazing is he played for such terrible teams during his great seasons in in Washington. All six seasons were terrible. He played for terrible teams. Yet, people, the pitchers still threw them. And I wonder how is that possible? Who yeah. <laughs> could have simply walked them? <laughs> you know, we, we, we look back and, yeah, he played for some terrible teams. And unfortunately, there's some players, great players in the history of all sports who played on terrible teams, were great players and never made it into the postseason. You know, Ernie Banks. Ernie Banks. You know, I'm watching uh, the the NHL playoffs right now, and there's a guy on the St. Louis Blues, Jay Bowmeister, who's been around for 10 years, and this is a league that has 16 teams make the playoffs, and this is his first time making the playoffs. So it happens. I'd like to end our, our, our show today with this. Roy Seavers was one of the first two players in history, if I follow this correctly, to hit at least 300 home runs and not be enshrined in Cooperstown. Gil Hodges was the other. Why exactly. was why was Roy passed over? Heck, for that matter, why was Hodges passed over? Why why oh, the well. two of them? I, I just especially Hodges. I mean, I'm a Hodges. I'm a Mets fan. My dad grew up a, a Dodgers fan, and I mean that one is just just mind boggling. Well, but for but, me, that one makes no sense at all. Playing with all those great teams in in Brooklyn in the 1950s and the 1969 Miracle Mets and his early death. Uh, I find that to be a travesty. I'd like to see uh, baseball, the Veterans Committee, get Hodges in. Yeah. Um, but with Seavers, you're right. He's one of two uh, of that generation, the, fir- uh, of the of those who hit 300 home runs, the first two that did not make it to the Hall of Fame. I think go back to maybe uh, a motif that I mentioned early on. He played and had his best seasons for teams that had absolutely um, terrible records. They were poor hitting teams. They were poor pitching teams. And they were um, eighth. They were were cellar-dwelling teams, last place, second-to-last place teams. 
And he simply had really no national name recognition. Wow. Unlike Rogers, of course, who's going to uh, back then, of course, winning the pennant and going to the World Series, no playoffs, but he's going, he's getting national attention. And you have to imagine in an era without obviously the instant gratification of looking up information about uh, scores in real time or even the next day, people are not, I mean, where would you hear about Roy Seavers? Yeah. I mean, you if you live in Washington, and that was a team that was also just attracting 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 fans um, at games. And he played for the second team in St. Louis. Right. And he played for the second team. So um, he was 33 years old by the time uh, uh, that he got to the White Sox uh, in Chicago. That was the first team that he played on that had a winning record. And, of course, by that time, uh, well, there are bigger names in, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's playing on a team with a reigning AL MVP. You have uh, little Nellie Fox playing him, Louis Aparicio. Um, maybe maybe if um, he had – maybe had the, uh, the White Sox won another pennant, maybe had he won an MVP or, or more recognition. But his, his tenure there was short and, and – uh, the same as in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, they had, you know, two seasons, but they didn't make it to the to the, the pennant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now I I I would not I am not I would never uh, go so far as to say that Roy Seaver should be in the Hall of Fame, but I would say that he is someone who is simply forgotten. And um, if you're like me and those who want to understand. Which players were considered the great players in the era during which they played? Well, people looked at Roy Seavers as one of the best players. And that's why we do this podcast, because like you said, he's forgotten. And we bring these these great players whom time has forgotten or for whatever reason, they're just not remembered. And we bring them we bring their stories back to life. And Roy Seavers is is just a perfect example of why I do this podcast. I, I always say, you know, uh, you got to download these podcasts and listen to them on your way to work. Download every one of them, uh, no matter what sport, uh, to, to learn a little bit about, the, uh, about players, whether they be baseball, your football, basketball, and your hockey players in a historical context. Nobody knows Roy Seavers today, yet at one time he was considered among the most feared sluggers in baseball, not just for one or two years, but we're talking about uh, for almost a decade. Yep, exactly. Greg, I want to thank you so much for joining me again on Sports Forgotten Heroes. What are you working on right now? Well, big news coming out of Sabre. I have a new book that is officially online purchasable now already from Amazon. And that is a book on Wrigley field. Awesome. It is a wonderful Sabre publication over 400 pages, 100 essays about the history of Wrigley field through a uh, historical and monumental and groundbreaking games at Wrigley field from the first games played there during the federal league through uh, the most recent games of last year. Uh, that book has just been launched. It's already available, as I said, on Amazon.com and and on um, 
at Sabre site as well. And if all goes well, Warren, I think my next book, which is on Comiskey Park, might be out near the end of the summer, maybe during September, maybe during the mad rush of the pennant chase on September, the book will be out. Very cool. Very cool. Congratulations on both, Greg. Awesome. Oh, thank you. And, And thank you again for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Well, I really appreciate it. And, um, it's a wonderful thing that you're doing. And I think this is um, one of the reasons that I enjoy volunteering so much with uh, Sabre is because of, of how we're dedicated to preserving history and, and telling the story. And I think with, uh, with Roy Sievers, um, you know, maybe one could write a biography um, without interviewing players. But I think my goal was to, to give Roy Sievers his voice and telling his story. And I'm so happy that I did at that time because he passed not long thereafter. You did. You did. Again, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it, Warren. You take care. You too. Thank you. Every sport is littered with terrific stars whom time has forgotten. And as Greg and I just talked about, Roy Sievers certainly falls into that category. His career spanned 17 seasons. He was the Rookie of the Year in 1949. Then, injuries slowed him down, and when you combine 1950, 51, 52, and 53, he hit just 19 home runs and played in only 247 games, an average of just 61 games a year. Over the next 10 years, Seavers hit 275 home runs. That's 27 and a half homers a year. Overall, he hit 318. Certainly a solid career. And one has to wonder what would have happened if he didn't lose the four years to injury after winning Rookie of the Year. Still, Roy Seavers enjoyed a terrific baseball career. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to go way back in time to talk about the only guy in baseball history to play the game, manage a major league team, and work the game as an umpire. And it's his work as an umpire in one particular game that contributed to his legacy as one of the most important figures in baseball and World Series history. We will talk about the very unique career of Hank O'Day. That's next time. For now, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.